Hi, my name is uh, Sridhar Iyengar, or Shreed, um, and I beat the often path by being more inspired by my peers and peer models than, than role models, and using that inspiration to build uh, three companies in my career and really taking the lessons from every startup um, and the problems we've encountered and using that as a basis for my next startup. Welcome to a very special Boston edition of Beat the Often Path. I got the chance a little while ago to meet some of the most innovative and inspiring people in Boston's robust startup scene. And I have to tell you, I absolutely love my time there. Joining us on location from the Neurable offices in downtown Boston, Sridhar Iyengar is CEO of Elemental Machines and the former and founder and director of Misfit, a wearable tech company that was purchased in 2015 by Fossil for $260 million. Sridhar holds over 30 U.S. and international patents and received his Ph.D. from Cambridge University as a Marshall Scholar. His newest company, Elemental Machines, has 250-plus customers and $300 million in protected assets monitored with their tech, which leverages a unique suite of Internet of Things-enabled sensors, innovative software, and first-in-class data science to provide actionable insights that optimize complex operations. Well, if that sounds complicated, it's because it is, and it might be because this man is a genius. But more importantly, he's a great person who is committed to helping other founders grow. So I'm deeply honored to have his wisdom on the show today, right here in Boston. Well, welcome to the show, Shri. Thank you. Pleasure to have you here. It's, I'm deeply inspired and honored that you came to join me. Um, has anybody ever introduced you as the opposite of Elizabeth Holmes? <laughs> because that's the way I feel about it. you did all of the stuff that she pretended that she yes. could do. Yeah, well, uh, I haven't heard that, but when uh, when Theranos came out of stealth years ago, um, I got a bunch of phone calls and emails from my investors because my first company was a blood diagnostics company. That's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a bunch of uh, uh, you know potentially concerned investors coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, what's happening here, and um, I. I I took a couple of weeks and read through their patents and all that, and I, I was kind of scratching my head going, you know, I don't see anything unique. Maybe it's all trade secret. Maybe I don't know this, but what, certainly what was in the patents was, was not groundbreaking. Um, so we, we, didn't, we didn't give it much much heed at the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And unlike her, you got the FDA approval. Yes, <laughs> and yes. You, yeah. <laughs> you were in Walgreens, and you did yep. a, you checked a few of those boxes we, we, that she was checked, going after. We checked those boxes, yeah. So when you, you say you've done three companies, and these are not small companies. You've done three sizable companies. Um, and probably your most well-known is, is Misfit, yep. which you sold to Fossil, Fossil. in 2015. Yeah. So that's quite an epic journey that you've had, and now you've got Elemental Machines as your new company. So how did you end up here? Because you said before we started taping <laughs> that you were almost an accidental entrepreneur. You didn't yes. even know that you were going to be doing this. Yep. Um, so I, uh, I I kind of stumbled into entrepreneurship mainly through, I guess, peer pressure and and, and FOMO before FOMO was a term. Um, I, I just give a little background on myself. I'm an electrical engineer undergrad. I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Then I did my PhD in bioengineering at uh, in, in the UK at uh, at, at uh, Cambridge. And so, what was what was interesting about this that path was um, uh, as as an undergrad at the University of Illinois in the mid in the mid in the mid nineties. Um, if you know the history of 
Internet 1.0, a lot of what what came out in the first gen uh, Internet startups came out of the things that uh, that students, former students at the University of Illinois, had pioneered. Hmm. So, for example, Mark Andreessen, uh, I think he was a senior when I was a freshman, okay, um, or he might have he might have just graduated. I can't remember, but anyway, he you know um, prior to Netscape, um, the Mosaic browser was developed by Mark Andreessen and and the University of Illinois, the NCSA department at, at U of I. So the browser, um, I had a lot of friends who worked on that. I even dabbled into it for, I think, half a semester before I realized I was not ever going to be a coder. Yeah. Um, so, and then the uh, a lot of the founders of PayPal and their early employees came out of University of Illinois. Oh, I didn't know that. So Max Max Levchin and Luke Nosek, okay. um, two of the founders of of um PayPal were, uh, I think, a year or two behind me, uh, and, and and actually my co-founder for twenty plus years uh, was my old roommate in college. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of um, folks in that in that environment that went on to do uh, amazing things. Um, now my 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 parents are of Indian origin, and my co-founder Sonny, his uh, he his parents are of uh, Vietnamese origin, and having parents of of Asian descent. Um, the advice we got was stay in school, don't skip class, study hard. Yeah, go work for a big company. Okay, like the absolute worst advice you could be giving right. somebody at that time at that mm-hmm. university. So we often joke about that. That um, that uh, if 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 you know <laughs> if we didn't if we hadn't listened to our parents, we would have maybe ended up in Silicon Valley and uh, done all <laughs> that much earlier. Um, but then uh, I, I was really fascinated by academia. I, I, I was I wanted to be a researcher, wanted to be a professor. I thought, so I had this wonderful opportunity to go to graduate school, and I went off to to Cambridge and did a PhD in in, uh, in bioengineering and, and specifically in biological and chemical sensors. Um, that way, I could learn about life sciences and biology, and, and still leverage my uh, engineering double E background. Um, and the 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 work we did there. That was sort of the inspiration and basis for my first startup. Um, but then you might ask, why did I even get into, into startups? Exactly, yeah. Well, during the late 90s, when I was out of the U.S. and out of the software and tech uh, sector in academia, in the U.K., in the life sciences, I saw a lot of my my classmates, my peers, my former classmates, I mean, um, uh, all going off to Silicon Valley, um, doing startups. Um and I remember this distinctly uh, uh, watching how difficult uh, and how laborious it was for my for my PhD advisor to raise funding through grants. You know, getting a half a million dollars or half a million pound uh, grant took so much effort. Mm-hmm. And yet, I'm looking at folks that I went to college with that are raising five, ten million bucks for selling, you know, selling clothes online or, 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 I don't know, something, something. Shirts.com. Yeah. T-shirts.com. <laughs> Bingo. And I'm sitting here going, wait a minute. What you're telling me is funding is a lot easier over here than over here. Right. So why would I stay in academia? I wanted to continue doing sciencey stuff, but I figured it was just easier to get capital funding over here from, from the, um, the private sector. So couple that, um, with, uh, just the feeling that I wanted to come back to the U.S. after living in the U.K. for a number of years, um, I contacted um, my old roommate, uh, Sonny, who was actually doing a Ph.D. program at MIT. Um, contacted him and said, hey, I'm looking to come back to the U.S. Um, uh, he always had a much 
bigger network of friends. He was far more social than I was. So I said, here's my resume. Can you help me find a job? Yeah. <laughs> so he emails me back within like three minutes and says, hey, I just started a software company. Come come join me. Wow. And, um, That's fortuitous. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, I, I, I've been roommates with you. I've known you for many years. So when you say you started a software company, I take it with a grain of salt. So okay. come on, let, let's have a talk about it. So anyway, so we talked about it and, and I'm like, all right. Uh, let me let me see what this is like. So we had a gentleman's agreement, which was if he had raised enough money to pay me for a year, okay. then he would have a year of my time. I would help. <laughs> I would help him. You know, that's a good deal. Uh, yeah, I'm like, all right, I'll help you build your company, and if I like it, I'll stay. If okay. I if I don't, then I'll give you tons of 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 heads up, help find a replacement, transition out. But you've got me for a year. I will absolutely not let you down, and do whatever I need to do to help you with your startup. I was not a founder there. I was employee number. 10 or something like that. Mm. Um, that first year was fantastic. Um, I got to see what it was like to, 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 to watch a company grow from you know five or 10 people to 60 people within a year. Um, and it was internet 1.0. It was just money kept flowing and, and it was just, it was, it was just a very, very exciting experience. It had nothing to do with my PhD whatsoever. It was in computational linguistics and that type of thing, which was his, his background. Um, but I got to, I, I got to meet salespeople, marketing people, uh, biz dev people. I kind of learned what it was like to raise money, and I, I never sat in on the pitches, but I was involved in some of that that sort of discussion, and and it just became um, very exciting. I looked around and and again, peers. I'm looking around, going, "Wait a minute, you know this this seems quite doable." Um, and if you're in that here in the in the MIT ecosystem, um, you know the, the the social group that I had. After I moved here, they were either all founders working at startups, investing in startups, or about to start a startup. Um, and you look around, and those were the peers, and everyone was doing it. So it just seemed natural to try my hand at it. And I always thought, hey, maybe maybe I'll do it. But this gave me the confidence uh, to do it. And so about six, eight months into my first stint uh, at my at Sunny's first company, I said, hey, I think when my year is up, I'm going to I'm going to resurrect my PhD work and continue that. I, I think there's more to it, and my PhD was in glucose monitoring, glucose sensing, uh, healthcare, and um, that's kind of what I did. I, I at nights and weekends I started resurrecting some of the stuff and doing experiments in the kitchen, you know. Okay. Um, and then after my year was up, I I tried it full time, um, and soon after that, my my business partner Sunny left his own startup. I had disagreements with the founders, and he was going to go back to MIT to finish his PhD, at which point I said, uh-uh, you owe me a year of your life. Oh, you owe me a year of your time, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Come he, did back. Little, yeah, he did a little soul-searching and said, all right, let's do it. And so that's how our first company together, Agamatrix, uh, was, fo- was founded in 2001. Incredible. So do you think that the climate has changed? I mean, it seemed like a very nice startup climate. Is it the same? Have things fundamentally shifted since then? It's interesting. Um, the the time we actually decided to start our first company was actually not a great time uh, because it was kind of right after the first bubble burst and it was uh, right after 9-11. I remember having the incorporation papers in hand ready to walk to the the, the mailbox the post uh, to drop it in because obviously things were not done online as, as readily. And that was September 11th. I turned on the TV and I'm like, yeah, today's not a good day. <laughs> yeah, this is a good omen, if ever. <laughs> yes. So uh, should yeah. I be doing this? Yep. So oh, literally, it was September twelfth when I dropped it into the mailbox. Oh my goodness. So, but 
what it, what it allowed us to do was, um, and Sonny is always the optimist, and he 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 looked at it this way, and he said, "Listen, if we get funded in this climate, that means we have a really good idea mm. and really good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We should not be raising money for things that are dumb ideas." And so this mm. is actually is a very very good filter uh, for us, and which was, might be said of this current climate, which is, now, right? I was, yeah, I was just gonna say, I know, and we're seeing that right now. You can and make it now. If you can make it now, You're you have good. a very, very good shot at success. Okay. Wow. That's an interesting insight. Yes. He's a, he's, he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. I guess if you have to frame things that way to, A, get involved in startups and to build a company, and you have to maybe learn how to flip that switch and see that opportunity and convince yourself that something bad happening is actually a good thing. It's actually, you always have to look at, at the bright side. Mm. Otherwise, you'll get swept away. Mm-hmm. So what about the the types of companies? Um, do you think that the type of company that gets funded now, I mean, obviously your current company is is dealing with something that's different, but it's based on a progression that came yes. from your first idea. Do you think that the type of company that's interesting right now, because when I look at some of the, the VC funds also, you know, we're, we're here at the, the Norable offices right now, um, it's almost all AI companies. It's like AI, 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 AI. Uh, is that what it takes? Is that what you need to be doing? Or... Um, are there other opportunities yeah. that you see? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny. Um, saying that you're an AI company now is like back in the day saying, saying you're an internet company. Internet, yeah, we're an, well, we're we're an internet company. Put a dot com. That's dot com. We got it. it exactly. It's a company. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's there's a certain amount of hype, but I think I, I do think um, AI is 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 overhyped, but oh, it's overhyped because I think it's also slightly misunderstood because. A lot of the value in the AI approach is not fancy AI algorithms and techniques. I mean, those are fairly open source and off the shelf. The value comes in in what is the training data that you have. And do you have access to data that nobody else does that gives you a competitive advantage? And as you progress your, your, your platform or your product, are you gathering more unique data that makes makes your training model that much more uh, competitive and special. So the focus should really be on what special unique data do you have, not that you're an AI company. And so the AI part is like saying, hey, I, you know, I use computers. Right. You know, it's, it's, a tool, it's a tool. Um but so much of the of the uh, of of the excitement is I think misplaced or at least probably like mischaracterized as hey, you're an AI company versus we actually have a very unique data set that nobody else has. And A, we've spent years collecting it. Maybe you have a special machine that that, that generates unique data, or you or you're able to pull correlations together nobody else can. Whatever it is, it's the data set, the data that you use to train your models that's gonna be uh, gonna give you your unique unique uh, advantage. And we're coming into a legal minefield with that stuff because people are saying, hey, we can make these images. And somebody is saying, yeah, but it's all trained on Getty images or a protected source, or it's based on, hey, my artwork is showing up in an yeah. AI rendering. Um, so that seems to be something that's only going to increase as we start solidifying the law around the input source of yep. these AI models. Yeah, well, uh, legislation always lags technology. I mean you, you, you see that with uh with gig workers like uh, Uber and right. DoorDash and all this and that the legislation around protecting gig workers is what a decade behind mm-hmm. the innovation. Mm-hmm. So uh you know that's 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 not surprising. Um yeah. uh legislation should come in uh but what's going to end up happening uh I think is that that legislation is going to increase 
the cost burden for doing these types of things, and that's going to put certain people out of the market and give others a competitive edge because they're able to to kind of navigate around that. So I don't, I don't think legislation is a bad thing. Um, I think what it's going to do is to to cause a lot of the uh, the invested VC dollars to to go down the tubes because a lot of these startups that are uh, that they're kind of winging it or are trying to go rogue may not be able to get the exit after some legislation comes. And we we've seen this happen with telemedicine. Telemedicine companies will will tank based on uh, based on legislation. I've had friends who've um, had uh, I, I won't say the name, but they were um, hundred million <laughs> in, in revenue. Um, and they had to close shop because of changes in legislation uh, due to how certain medications uh, are, are allowed to be distributed through telemedicine activities mm. and all that. And so, hundred million dollar company now just um, gone, gone because wow. of legislation. And also, AI telemedicine is just around the corner as it well. Is. Where your doctor, uh, you know, that guy Martin Shkreli, the former pharmaceutical bro of fame, he's starting an AI powered teledoc. You have to wonder what's going to happen with that. Yep. Um, yeah, it's 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 quite an interesting thing. But about the lag, I think in ten years, you know, Mark Zuckerberg when he was testifying, the people who were asking questions, they're like, Facebook makes money from advertisement. Like they knew nothing, <laughs> nothing. about <laughs> anything, and they didn't even know the basics of the business model. So I'm sure in ten years they'll just be wrapping their heads around what a computer is, and then maybe ten yeah. years from there, the legislation will follow. Perhaps. Yeah, I. I there was I can't remember this. There was one uh, legal case where there was image, uh, photographic or video capture of some crime being committed or something, uh, but the but they were able to get it thrown out because the image was enhanced through AI, and nobody could explain what changes actually happened. Oh, and so they said, well, if you can't explain how it was changed, then. We can't. We have to throw it on throughout the evidence. Now, you and I both know AI enhancement isn't going to fundamentally change. No. Um, you know, it's going to enhance an image and all that. It'll make it look like a, a watercolor or an oil painting. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's just an image enhancement. I think it just uh, oh, know, just just literally, yeah, yeah, like made it more clear or something okay. like that. But they were able to find the fact that it was an AI enhanced image, and nobody could explain to the jury or the judge, whoever. Um, what actually was changed because the AI models will change over time. You know, nobody really knows what happens. You know, you have you have all these hidden layers. You have all these weights on these different nodes. Like you're not, it's not understandable to a human being, and, and certainly not conveyable to a jury of laypeople. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you and I can look at something and say, yeah, the AI enhancement really didn't change what it was, but they were able to get it thrown out because that's what. That's what the loss allows them to do. Nitpicking and loopholes is the foundation of our legal system. Yes, and the legal system. Technicalities. Technicalities. Right. Yeah. You didn't put a comma there, therefore. The Oxford comma. Yeah, exactly. The Oxford, (laughs) the Cambridge comma, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's quite a, a bizarre bizarre system and of course all of this stuff is coming you know obviously human achievement the ability for anybody to explain an advancement in the coming decades is, is only going to shrink also in terms of a scientific breakthrough we're at a point where all of these advancements are just going to be far beyond the comprehension because hey here's a black box we put a whole bunch of input yep. and then this stuff gets spit out and it's either useful or harmful but nobody really knows what's going on in the black box it's it's interesting that um that has that that has very big implications for uh, for healthcare. 
because if you if we're going to use AI techniques to or AI tools to diagnose a patient or or or, or prescribe a therapy, mm. then how do you validate that that's correct? The only way to really do that is just to do loads and loads and loads of uh, clinical trials mm-hmm. to get that uh, to get that through. That's a that's extraordinarily expensive, but also here's here's the interesting thing: the more data you feed into a model, you know, with every new training set, um, the model changes. So if you came if you came up with a with a, diag- a diagnostic, uh, you know, device or software, or 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 a therapeutic. If you ran that on a model that was done when the FDA cleared your product versus a new model today, those results could be different. They could be better, but then that means you have another regulatory burden to go through. So uh, the FDA is starting to get their head around um, how to regulate that. And I, I think they'll get there. It's just going to take it's mm-hmm. going to take some time. But there's huge regulatory and legal implications for using tools that humans don't fully understand yeah. yet. I heard a study not too long ago that AI was trained on X-ray data, or I think it was X-rays, and the upshot was from an extremely narrow section of an X-ray, AI could tell whether the patient was male or female. Mm. And no doctor understood why or what it was. It was identifying something and it was correct, but nobody understood what that difference was. Yep. So the decisions that it's making, we don't know what it's... Yeah. It's, it's picking up information and data that is not perceptible to the human, or at least, you know, might be a point here, a point here, and a so point ratio, here. Right. Yeah. And it's connecting three dots that we as a human don't see the connection to because they're very disparate. But if those three dots appear all the time mm-hmm. uh, consistently, then there's then it picks that up as a, as a signature. And so therein is the flaw that if you feed it with with biased input training yeah. data, then you're going to get biased output, and right. that's that's one of the big um, issues with um, a lot of these uh, telemedicine apps, or or even uh, uh, skin cancer apps, for example. Is like you know, are, are you training it on the right skin tones? Are you right. are you getting the full diversity of of inputs? And the answer is not yet, because that's costly. Right. <laughs> it takes money. It takes time. So eventually the industry will get there. But those are some of the uh, the very valid um, yeah. concerns. And there was also that story of, it was something like, um, because the training data and every and they were trying to detect skin cancer or something yeah. like that, and every single picture that had skin cancer had a ruler in it because they were measuring a dot. And so AI learned that if you see a ruler, it's skin cancer. <laughs> because <laughs> it, the ones it, that didn't, didn't have the ruler or something it, like that, right? Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah so exactly. it's like, ah, ruler equals cancer. Like, yeah. But that's the kind of stuff that we don't <laughs> think about. But if you're very procedural and if you're following a procedural method, you're going to get there. Um, yeah. So let's let's go back a little bit because you've talked about what I think the arc of your career is essentially building a moat, as it's called, or distancing yeah. yourself. You said it was a logical progression. You started there. Um, so I want to talk about a couple things, but one of them is the role of funding in general. You had said that grants are difficult to achieve and private funding is generally easier. Um, how do you feel now, having done this many times, about getting funding for a concept, knowing that... Some people say, you know, you're beholden to the people who um, invest in you, and then they might even take over your company. So, uh, have your thoughts changed on VC and all of that since then? And um, it's it's funny. It it so I've had you know several founders kind of uh, ask me about about the very ask me the very same question, and what I tell what I tell them was, um, don't take money till you need it, and if you can build a business without taking outside capital. 
um, then do that. Uh, and the reason is, as soon as you take an outside capital, you have other stakeholders that you need to um, be responsible to. And convincing them and telling them your vision becomes a large part of your uh, of your role. And when you have the right investors that share that, then that's great. If you don't have the right investors, it becomes a large part of your, <laughs> it occupies a large part of your brain. Um, but fundamentally is, not all businesses need outside capital. Um, all of my companies have had a hardware component, a deep tech component to it. So there's a lot of startup costs. You need to, you know, building physical things, uh, hiring engineers and all that. So so by the very nature of the kinds of products and companies that I've been interested in building, it requires outside capital. So it's always, that's always been sort of the uh, the playbook that, that, that I follow and I've gotten comfortable with it. Um, but there's um, other folks... Um, um, that have built uh, companies that are worth you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, that, as far as I know, have taken no out, no outside capital. Um, a company locally called ButcherBox. Okay. Um, uh, one of my friends started that, and uh, he's a serial entrepreneur. And and ButcherBox is a mail order meat okay. order supply company, but very high quality, grass fed, and all that. It was kind of homegrown, and now it's worth hundreds of millions of bucks, and it's. You know, no outside capital, as far as, as far as I recall. Okay. So if you've got a choice, go without. But if you don't have a choice, yeah, maybe, just yeah. you know, if you need outside capital, take it. Yeah. But but if you don't need it, don't take it just because you want you want you want yeah. to say you're VC funded. You, you and a lot of a lot of businesses don't need it. And I've had um, uh, so so in addition to being an entrepreneur, I also sometimes have my investor hat on as well. And I came across this one company that's um, been around for ten years and raising their first round of capital. And for ten years, they were basically a consulting company. But with every consulting gig, they built the solution as a product. So they they used uh, they productized what they were offering to Brilliant. their to their yeah. customers. And so they got to a point they were you know ten plus million in revenue, uh, but. They were on a linear trajectory. They weren't going to exponentially grow. So now was the right time for them to get outside capital and and, and invest more in R and D um, and 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 do that J curve uh, as a growth. But it took them ten years, and ten years they had no outside capital. And I thought that was that was great. So you know, take the capital when you need it, um, and until then, if you don't need it, don't take it because you you become beholden to a timeline and beholden to stakeholders that may not have the same outlook and time time frame um, as you do. Mm. So you mentioned earlier about the the peer models, and I do want to touch on that a little bit. Um, is that just a competitive urge? Is that just a competitive sense of if if Gary's doing it, I think I can do something better? Is that has that just been a motivating factor in your life? Or no, it, it's uh, it's funny. I, I think I along with with many other sort of entrepreneurs, um, uh, suffer from imposter syndrome, <laughs> a very, very severe form of imposter syndrome. Um, and so you do wait, interviews <laughs> over. <laughs> Get out of yeah. this. We don't yeah, want you, this you, guy. You, you, you found me out. <laughs> he's not as interesting as I thought he would be. Cut the tape, cut the tape. Yeah. Um, and so at least for me, I'll speak about myself. Um, a, a large part of it was confidence building. Um, uh, there's, there's definitely a competitive, competitive aspect, uh, but it's not because we're not in the same race. Somebody's building, somebody's building a, uh, you know, a, a e-commerce company. We're not in the same race. But if I see somebody else building something, I'm like, wait a minute, 
I know that guy or gal. And uh, I kind of think we come from the same background and, you know, we're pretty much intellectually probably about the same. We have the same work ethic. Um, Wow. If he can do it, then maybe I can too. So for me, it was less about the competition and a lot more about confidence building. Um, Again, because a lot of people don't see this as an option for their lives. It's, I think a lot of, especially people who don't live in a hub such as Boston or Silicon Valley or in one of these tech capitals, they see all of this stuff as just some mythical faraway land. It has no bearing. All they want to do is just, can I get a job somewhere? Um, And, you know, it all comes down to risk reward profile. And, and to me, it was all about, I never wanted to ask what if, um, I, you know, I, I think to me, the biggest fear is, is regret. Um, and that, that was just something that was instilled into me by my parents at a very, very early age. They, they came from India, <coughs> excuse me, they came from India to the U S, um, and they always had a very adventurous spirit. Um, you have to, to to make a journey like that, especially, um, you know, back in the day. Um, and they were very much into travel. We traveled a ton. Uh, they they t- they exposed me to all walks of people, all walks of life, all different cultures and atmospheres, um, and all that. And my my dad's biggest um, philosophy was just give it a try. You know, just. Go do it. Don't don't ever say you can't. Um, if, you, if you don't want to, that's fine. But don't ever say you don't think you can. Just just try it. What's the worst that can happen? Mm-hmm. And so, I, I had this feeling instilled into me that um, I would regret not trying far more than 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 trying and failing. Um, and uh, I guess that was a big part of it. But then I was also I didn't have a lot of confidence. I, I always had to uh, prove to myself that I could do X, Y, or Z. Um, so you kind of put those two together, and when you see your peers um, kind of doing things, you kind of look around and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I could learn from them. And, and and actually, you know, being in the Boston, Cambridge area tremendously helped. If I was in a different geography where I didn't have this ecosystem, it, it you know, my peers would be, would be folks who had nine-to-five jobs. Mm-hmm. And for many, many, many people, that is the right choice for them because right. they have responsibilities that – require that stability. And if you're in a a privileged position where you have the option to explore and take risks, it's, you know, to me, it it, it would be negligent not to. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm fully aware of, of the advantageous position uh, that I was in. And for me not to take advantage of that kind of seemed, seemed like the wrong thing to do. I just, mm. I just needed the confidence to do it. Well, I love that idea, and I, I think about that as well a lot about the regrets. And I do fast forward to my own deathbed, you know, as they say. I'm a big fan of philosophy, and you think about what you would regret. Have you always had the same sense of what those regrets might be? Because for me, I can some days think, "Oh, if only I had been more of a founder, then I'd be more of an entrepreneur." Or, yeah. "Gosh, I should have tried being a comedian, then I'd be more like Conan O'Brien." Or, "Oh man, if I was yeah. a musician." Have you ever had multiple different lines of regret vectors, or have you always yes. said an entrepreneur is the one thing that I would regret most oh, not no, being? No, no, no. Um, I, uh, I actually wanted to be a professional musician. Okay. Um, I, I grew up playing the drums. Okay. My, my mother. I saw that sometimes he's found behind a wall of yes, drums. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I have been a heavy metal rock drummer. Okay. <laughs> heavy metal. Okay. Um, yes. um, back when I 
I was going to say A when I had hair and B when I had long hair. <laughs> um, but when I was in grad school. Uh, I was I was in two different bands. Uh, we uh, a big influence on me was a band called Rush. Oh yeah, sure, sure. So um, you know, being a drummer, um, that's 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 a given. Um, uh, another big uh, another band I'm a big fan of is a band called Primus. Oh yeah. Very heavy. <laughs> Very heavy, yeah. I, I think it was even too heavy for heavy metal folks. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, Go yeah. straight I, to the ear bleeding yeah, from your headphones, yeah. It, exactly. Um, so I, I, I tried. I, I, I tried to be a drummer. I, I joined a couple of bands and did stuff. And uh, remember camping out in, uh, in, our, in our van for two weeks, going on tour mm-hmm. uh, around. We drove around the southeastern United States. Uh, we, we, were, we were signed to a small, very small indie label when I was in college. Um, and it was, it was interesting um, seeing uh, my, my group of friends in the, in, in the music scene versus my university college friends. Right, very, multiple different sets of peer models. Very different peer models. And one thing I realized very quickly was um, I would love to be a musician, but I realized to do that, as a drummer, you, you didn't have as much influence and control over over the success of that group. Really, it was driven by the singer, the guitarist, the, the people, folks who wrote the music and all that. And as as, as the percussion, as, as a drummer, uh, un, unless you're in a band like Rush, where it it, it kind of it magically gelled, you're so dependent on the other members, and it just seemed like a. a you know, it kind of seemed like a risk <laughs> that, I, that I wasn't willing to take mm. um, because I didn't think I could find the right bandmates because a lot of the folks in that, in, 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 in trying to be musicians, um, most of the folks that I came across were not that serious and committed to the craft and more committed to the promise of the lifestyle. <laughs> mm, mm. It's, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's kind of another way of putting that they weren't really that serious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so I decided that you know I'll do it as uh, for fun, and you know I still keep in touch with my old bandmates, and we've been saying we'll record stuff at some point over the internet. But hey, that's eventually we might do something like that. Um, so I've all, but, but the thing was, I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried, and I realized that, that was not a path. That I was willing to commit to because of X Y Z reasons, I would have regretted far more if I hadn't even tried doing that. Yeah. So to me, trying and then realizing that's not what I wanted to do is far more is is the is the way forward. Are you able to make peace with that? Because I made a big shift. I was also a musician. Actually, I was a DJ, and that was all I wanted to be for many years. And mm-hmm. speaking of peer models, I have multiple different ones, but a lot of the people that I knew are very successful DJs. And if you look at their Instagram profile, it looks like they're yeah. living an absolute dream life. Every weekend, they're somewhere yep. else. There's a crowd. Um, I must admit that even though I put that behind me, I find it very hard in those moments when I'm scrolling through Instagram and I'm saying, like, oh, I'm behind a desk on a computer all day. I do very boring work as a digital marketer yeah. now. Yeah. Um, it's and I see the the crowd, and I miss that immediacy of, of that rush, right? Which you understand. Um, but at the same time, I know the reasons intellectually why I chose to leave it, and I yeah. also think it's a very tough industry. I worked yeah. at a, a record label. I know how hard it is yeah. to make a living. Now, if you are a record exec and you've got a great, then the CEO of a record label, though, they can be okay. But a lot yeah. of the artists, it's almost random. It's a yeah. crapshoot. Um, do you ever have moments where you? Still, in spite of having made a rational decision, think, you know what, I wish I had done that more? Or have you been able to really close that chapter and say, that's done, and I don't, I know why I did it, and I'm at peace with that? 
Yeah, I th- um, so I'm at peace with it for a number of reasons. Uh, one, um, none of the folks that I uh, knew have made it big, so to speak. Um, one of one of my previous bandmates has made a career out of being in the music industry, uh, but he's a sound engineer and he travels around the world, and it's it's like I'm, I'm envious of his of his of his of his lifestyle. Um, but none of the other musicians. Uh, Really made it made it to major label, you know, MTV success and all that. I mean, some of the folks kind of got to that stage, and then now now they're you know we're not able to maintain it. Um, but to me, uh, what I found is the same sense of thrill in entrepreneurship. Mm. So to me, that same that same you know primal need <laughs> for excitement, adventure, and and to some extent, um, you know, fame. Okay. Yeah, fame, fame right? Yes, yes. Um, and 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 all that certainly made uh, an impact. Yeah, uh, all of those things are fed yeah. uh, in 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 entrepreneurship. Um, mm. And and what's what's interesting is um, it it it's um, it gives me a lot more sense of purpose, um, knowing that I'm building things that are actually useful to humanity. Hopefully, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm not saying that that music and art. Aren't, but I know a lot of folks who were in it for the lifestyle and not because they wanted to make an impact. And if I, again, if I look back to uh, Rush, uh, the bands that has had a huge impact on my my thinking, my philosophy, and my my, my life, um, uh, their 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 drummer Neil Neil Peart, um, there was an interview with him where he said, you know, he felt that the greatest thing that he or they as musicians can do is to inspire people. And certainly their art inspired many, many folks, including other top-tier artists. Yeah. So many artists credit Rush with inspiration. Yeah. And so what I found was, at least in 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 a lot of the folks that I met, um, sort of the indie music scene, they were not in it to inspire people. They were in it to for the sex, drugs, and rock and roll mm-hmm. lifestyle, which mm-hmm. uh, you know is is not something <laughs> that really appealed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Feel to be, um, and so, you know, the fulfillment, the sense of purpose, the excitement, to some extent, the uh, uh, the fame. Um, th- these these things are fulfilled here, uh, mm-hmm. probably tenfold more uh, than I would have ever had uh, sort of as a as a, as a semi professional musician. Right. <laughs> so, what what uh, what in that excites you the most? Is it do you require that sort of exponential feeling? Uh, if you had linear growth, would that provide you that excitement, or does it have to be that potential for truly massive growth that gets you moving? Well, it's funny. Um, obviously, from a financial standpoint, we all we all want that exponential growth. But if I, if I look at it just from my, you know, sort of what can I relate to? Um, I probably got a lot more satisfaction from individual users and customers. Uh, reaching out and saying, "Hey, this had an impact on me." Um, I'll give you um, a perfect example. Back in my first company, when we were making glucose meters, glucometers, we uh, so our, our claim to fame at that first company is we made the world's first medical device to physically plug into an iPhone. Obviously, it's a glucose meter, um, and that and we we launched that uh, actually uh, uh, Sanofi or Sanofi. Depending on whether you're German or okay. French, um, they bought exclusive rights to that, and they okay. they launched it under their brand in 2010. So very early days of digital health. Um, so it was out in the market, um, and we were getting 
we were getting letters from parents um, saying how much they, they love the product because, imagine this, this is 2010, 2011. Um, iPhone 3, iPhone 4 had just come out. Um, uh, all the kids wanted an iPhone. Parents would say no, except if you had diabetes, your parent bought you an iPhone, gave you our little plug-in device. So all of a sudden, they became the coolest kids in school oh, right. because they had an iPhone right? with a glucometer. And then when you tested their blood sugar, we had this really cool animation of you know sparks flying through blood cells and, uh, and all that. It just became, became really cool. And, and the thing was, the, the, some of the letters we got were basically saying, you know, our you know, little Johnny or little you know, Jackie or whatever, um, they don't feel strange. They don't, they don't feel odd. Um, for having diabetes, you know, they, they don't feel weird because mm -hmm. you've kind of made them the star of their classroom because they have the iPhone, they have this cool little thing. And it took the stigma out. And that's huge when you're, when you're, you know, eight years old, you don't want to be different. And so individual anecdotes like that probably touched me a lot more. And over the years we've had, we've had various folks, uh, you know, kind of reach out and say, Hey, thanks to, thanks to you guys. We had the, this amazing thing happened or thanks to you guys, you know, this happened. And so that to me is far more meaningful than, than any type of, you know, exponential growth. Now from a financial standpoint, yes, we all, we all want that. Right. But from an emotional standpoint, those things motivate right. me and, and certainly our team the most. Our team loves, in any company, the team loves hearing individual stories because you can relate to that. Mm -hmm. And that, that's very, very powerful. So yeah, it's that, uh, that specific kind of motivation because with money there's there's limits to you know the the amount of stuff that you want to buy it's it's finite the amount of things that you could possibly covet is pretty yeah. much finite so there's surely a limit where you say okay beyond this that's almost doesn't even matter to me anymore but the feeling of making impact that always will matter because i don't think there's ever a moment where you say okay i'm going to stop i don't want to make impact anymore i don't want to receive those letters anymore so is is that feeling would you say that that's addicting to you that that feeling of I want to impact more and more people yes. in a positive way. Yes, um, absolutely. So, I um, uh, so this is actually a pretty good segue to um, I, I had a um, uh, so so at my last company, Misfit, we actually had three three founders. So myself, Sonny, who's always been my co-founder, and then the third co-founder was John Scully, uh, former CEO of Apple. And that's Apple, yeah. the whole other story of how we got. Like, I'll tell that. Okay. We can cover that a little, yeah. a little wow. bit later. I didn't know that detail, um, but amazing. yeah. So, um, so I remember a conversation I had with John, um, and I'm pretty sure John won't even remember this conversation because it was kind of a throwaway conversation. But he said something that fundamentally changed how I thought about building a company, and was the foundation for how we built Elemental Machines. I haven't actually told John this, so maybe if you okay. listen, to <laughs> all right, podcast, send him the link. Um, so we were at CES uh, in, in Vegas. Uh, again, for Misfit, we had, a, we had a booth and all that. So we were having dinner somewhere, uh, somewhere nice. I can't remember where it was. Uh, um, and uh, I asked him, so you know, how do you how do you how, how do you make that proverbial dent in the universe? And how do you how do you really impact an industry? How do you change an entire industry? 
And he said something. I'm like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And what he said was, he said, look, look, Reed, if you, if you really want to impact an industry, like an entire industry, you need to build infrastructure. Maybe today we call it a platform or something like that. But, okay. But he said, the word he used was infrastructure. You need to build infrastructure that other people can build things on. You can build things up, but you need to build infrastructure that an entire industry can be built upon. And of course, the example was Apple, uh, iTunes, iOS, iPhone, exactly, yeah, yeah. obviously. He's uh, an example, but also like Facebook. Uh, it's infrastructure, if you think about right. it. But then what he said was, but the, but the problem with infrastructure is nobody buys infrastructure. Like it's very, very hard to sell infrastructure. It's, you know, you become a consultant, a contractor, and you, yeah. But what you need to do, but, but people buy products. So what you need to do is to build a product, to build a business around, but when no one's looking, build infrastructure underneath it. Uh, or in other words, as you build build product on top of your own infrastructure, right. and if you look at what um, iPhone did, it is infrastructure. Right, what you, detractors call the walled garden, but Apple fans appreciate that. That's right. You can build on top of that. But yeah. what did they do? They when they when the iPhone launched, it it came with some native applications. It came with a calendar app. It came with a phone app. Came with a messaging. It came with a calculator app. Came with a notes app. Whatever. So they built products on top of infrastructure and then opened up that infrastructure for everyone else. And again, it was like an, maybe a two to three minute conversation over dinner and drinks it's years ago. Mind. And I'm like, and of course, Facebook was a good example. It's a product, but it's also infrastructure. Other people have built tremendous All businesses. these marketers are trying to figure out how to use it. Exactly. And they're trying to build their livelihoods yes. on the backbone of Facebook and Instagram and all these other platforms. Yep. And that's really how I thought about building Elemental is that on one hand, we're an IoT company. We built we built hardware devices to connect things to the cloud. And we're going after the biotech and pharma sector for you know various reasons. That was a that was a good first market for us to go into. But what we built underneath is uh is a very, very scalable infrastructure platform that allows other people to use our data and build applications on uh, on top of. And so we're slowly rolling that out. And you know, it took five years for us to build all of this and mm. and, and and to establish ourselves as as a leader in the uh, in the the IoT for science space. I, th- I think people now are calling this whole space um, tech bio. Okay. Um, so tech bio or bio tools, right. uh, but te- tech bio I think is a word that's going to stick. Love these neologisms. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very important to label it correctly. Yes. So it's not biotech; it's tech no, bio. No, it's tech bio. Yeah, yeah, it's basically tech companies writing pro- creating products for the bio sector. Right. <laughs> so and we're 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 part of that. So so then in in a minute, to, since you know you've got the shirt on, we have to cover elemental machines. Yes. <laughs> uh, in in a minute, what is the problem that you're solving with elemental machines? Um, so <clears throat> connecting physical things to the cloud um, at a very high level. Why is that important? Because the world we live in a physical world, and when things happen in the physical world, usually you need to know about it in a computationally accessible format. So something happens, data is generated, and you can then analyze it and act on it. But in certain industries, getting data off of physical machines, physical instruments, you know, the environment, getting that data from the physical world into the digital world is not a trivial task. Mm. And I had that problem in our first company at Agamatrix, where we were working with a contract manufacturing partner in South Korea. And just to put things in perspective, um, we're making glucose glucose 
products, glucometers. We didn't have our own chemistry. We licensed it, and actually our, our, our partners there, they had the chemistry, they had the single-use disposable strip, they had pilot they had manufacturing and all that. So we we kind of partnered with them, and our, our expertise was was algorithmic. So we would be able to, to build algorithmic uh, technologies to improve signal to noise ratio and make those make those reads far more accurate so but here was here was a challenge uh, we they'd make a, a, a run of these strips and and on average it's, it's about a million units a day because we're about 300 million a year and we probably had one to two percent of the market back then like it was if you can imagine how massive That's this huge. market yeah I, I so, can't yeah <laughs> so on average about a million a day oh my goodness um it would be a month before we received them here for quality control testing and all that. Okay. And if everything passed, then great. Green light, pack ship, everyone's happy. But if it failed QC or we saw an issue, we'd have to investigate. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a random error. Something went wrong with that batch, right? Throw it out, move on. Yeah. Sometimes there was something systematic that right. might have gone wrong. And if that was the case, we potentially had made a month's worth of bad product. Right. And you don't you don't know. know about it. Yeah. So even knowing about it's it. Huge problem. Yes. Yeah, See, even knowing about it a day or two after, or even a three or four days after, it would be fine. <laughs> okay. But you know, fifteen years it's ago, like all this product, yeah, right. Fifteen years ago, we didn't have the the you know we pre cloud, pre AWS, pre Bluetooth, pre you know all of the pre AI and machine learning. So how do you get the data out of out of there? And so we did it in a semi semi manual way. Quite literally, we asked them to measure these things manually once a day, twice a day, type it into an Excel spreadsheet and then and an email it to us. And even with such a crude approach, we were able to build our models here based on that data. As crude as it was, as, as spotty as it was, we were able to spot issues months before they became financially, uh, you know, <laughs> financially relevant. Mm -hmm. So we got our yields up to almost 100%. And that extra you know, yield... Uh, I think we we're probably around eighty percent yield prior to that on average, first two years. So that extra twenty percent that we recovered in yield is what allowed us to bid very aggressively for the CVS contract. They they uh, had extra confidence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, the problem we're solving is is how the heck do we get data off of off of the physical machines and instruments into a into the cloud, and then from there we can do a we can we can do analyses. We can have dashboards. We can do whatever, whatever. So that's the problem we're solving, and we're going after the life sciences sector uh, mainly because they were generally late adopters to these kinds of technologies, which kind of makes sense because they're highly regulated. Mm -hmm. So change, change, change happens slowly. Um, but now with the advent that all all companies are now AI companies, the data scientists at these at these places they want this data in a in a computationally accessible format, so they, they want everything accessible through an API, um, and so being able to connect the physical world to the digital world is a core of what we do. And then once we have the data, we have applications that are relevant to them. So on the operations side, alerting and monitoring when things are out of range, uh, asset management, knowing how often things are used, utilization metrics, so you can make more intelligent opex and capex cool. decisions. We had a company that. That's cool. And we had a we had a customer that um, looked at how often their instruments and machines were used and realized to know what they need to invest in or maybe get rid of get rid of and yeah. they actually saved two hundred k a year by Incredible. not expanding into into an adjacent uh, lab okay. facility when they said actually you know what there's a lot of stuff here that no one uses we're going to consolidate this 
and they saved 200k a year. That's brilliant. We had uh, absolutely brilliant. Right, um, and when and and honestly, um, when when COVID when when COVID hit, it increased the demand for our type of product because the core of what we do is enable remote monitoring. Um, and so, if you're an office worker and you work on a laptop, you can go home and work, no big deal. But if you have to physically work with physical machines and instruments like you do in the biotech sector, the laboratory sector, uh, the clinical sector, or the manufacturing, you have to go in. Mm. But because of COVID, you had certain time slots where you could go in and it right. couldn't. So, so you need an overview. Of you all need an overview, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all these things kind of helped converge and that kind of accelerated the adoption of remote monitoring. And, wow, that's just brilliant. So yeah, on your website, you said something like 300 million in assets monitored. I didn't fully understand what that was. Now I do. There's a lot of small machines out there that you go up and just right. use and not connected to anything. So we're that's brilliant connecting all those. So yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time so far. Um, what an incredible story you have had. I do have a question. Imposter syndrome being something that I think everybody yeah. has experienced. A- anybody anywhere, I've certainly experienced that. I, I think most people attempting to do anything have experienced it in their yeah. life. Was there a moment? I mean, obviously, the the fossil exit with Misfit Wearables, you were well ahead of the curve. That's a, a well-published and you know, a large exit. Um, was there a moment where you felt, okay, I've made it or I've checked something off or have you never really had that moment? Um. Well, it's funny. I, I I've always been very insecure, and, and it, you know, it's. I talk to a lot of other entrepreneurs, and a lot of other entrepreneurs feel the same way. They're like, you know, because because we know everything that can go wrong, right? <laughs> and it's uh, hanging by a thread. Exactly. <laughs> Don't ask me any questions. <laughs> yeah, and and more so, I was trained as a scientist, and as a scientist, you are trained to focus on things that don't work. If it's working. Great. Publish mm-hmm. it. Don't worry about it. You know, focus, obsess over the things that could go wrong. And so, with that mindset, you have an, a, a disproportionately large mind share of things that could go wrong. Um, and th- th- there were a couple of times when I kind of felt so. So, for example, now I, I don't feel I need to prove myself to anyone. Um, so, meaning that. Um, it, it doesn't mean that I have ultimate confidence that I know that, that, that I know what I'm doing or anything like that. But what it means is I don't feel the insecurity that I need to prove myself. Like I don't I don't need like you know go back 10, 15 years. I walk into a room and I have to tell people who I am yeah. and this is what I did. And here's my credentials. And now I'm like, yeah, I don't. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. You know, um, I don't need to do that. Um, of course, there's people I meet. I'm like, wow, I'm a fanboy of <laughs> X, Y, Z, and I, I want to make sure that I can. I, I can seem impressive, um, but at the same time, I, I just don't feel the need to do that. Um, certainly, from a financial standpoint, I, I'm very comfortable now, and I feel I feel secure that we have enough for uh, I have enough for for our family uh, and all that. So that's box is kind of kind of kind of uh, kind of checked. But then people ask me, well, if you if you're financially uh, secure, why do you keep doing this? Yeah, my point is like. What else am I going to be doing? Yeah, because um, hook it up to my veins. I need the entrepreneurship. <laughs> what else am I going to do? Uh, you know, um, and it's giving me the freedom to 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 explore these things now. Cool. Um, certainly, academically, um, I don't feel the need. I need to uh, certainly when I um uh, after I kind of finish my PhD, I'm like, all right, well that that's checked. I can do that. Um, the only the only person that I feel <laughs> I still need to uh, 
prove myself to is probably my mother. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, well, we'll keep waiting for that yes, one. Yes, yes, I think we're on. <laughs> A- any minute now, I'm sure. Maybe maybe yeah. later today. Yes, we'll check her um, schedule. No, but, but, but all kidding aside, um, you know, it, it, there, are, there are things that I know I'm good at, and I'm confident in my abilities there. There are things that I know I'm not good at, and the key here is I am confident and secure enough to admit what I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the past, it would be admitting, I, I feel like I'm, I'm admitting failures, uh, admitting weakness, weaknesses. But today, it's like, I know I'm good at this. You know, know thyself. I know I'm good at this. I have no problem saying I need help with this. In fact, I could use all the help I can get because admitting I need help is not a blow to my ego or is not a blow to my self-worth because I've kind of ticked enough boxes that that I feel confident in that. And so I think that's what's really changed is I can ask for help without feeling bad. Mm-hmm. That's wise, wise advice. Well, you're certainly impressive to me. I know you were really nervous about coming in here and uh, like, I don't yeah. know what your audience wants to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Teach me. Um, you passed the test. You passed the interview. Congratulations. No, it's been an, it's just, it's mind blowing for me to get to know. I think it's incredible what you've been able to achieve. And thank you. The space that you're in is just remarkable. And the, the series of decisions that you've made, I mean, from an outsider looking in, it appears that you've always been one or two steps ahead of the curve uh, and continue to do so. So, Well, it's, it's funny you say that because with each of our startups, we were a little too early to market huh. at different times. So with my first company, um, the, the whole uh, iPhone-connected digital health, iPhone-connected medical device and digital health, we, we were three, four years too early to market uh, with that. Um, we're certainly pointing in the right direction, but a couple of years too early. Um, with Misfit, we uh, we actually started with a different product concept. Um, we actually were thinking about making a sensor-enabled insole. That that was the first um, first shoe. yeah. And then we looked around and we said, actually, my my partner Sunny kind of realized that. If we were to go down that path, we'd have we'd be first to market, and creating a market is very very hard. Oh. And so we actually pivoted to fitness trackers. Okay, and um, you were one of the first two, right? It was Misfit and Fitbit. Or, or was that, no, we or? we were actually fourth. There oh, was, okay, there was a Jawbone, Jawbone Up. Okay, uh, Jawbone uh, Fitbit was first. Then there was Jawbone. Then there was actually Nike Fuel Band. Ah, you remember that? I do. Yeah, I remember yeah. when that was new. Yeah. Yeah. So there were the three, and we we didn't worry too much about Nike because we realized that. Their foray into wearables was not their primary business. It was mm-hmm. it was to sell more shoes and, mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really Fitbit and Jawbone. Uh, and out of those two, Fitbit was really uh, the leader. So we we were effectively fourth uh, to market. And, and our niche was fashion, fashion and uh, yeah, fashion tech. Uh, and then here with Elemental, they call that tech fashion. Tech fa- yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so outdated. Yes. Uh. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and with Elemental, uh, we were probably two to three years too early to market. The first couple of years were uh, were tough, and um, we we had a we had a competitor here also in Boston um, called Tetra Science. Um, and back in the day, we were head to head. We're same same concept, same offering. Came at it from a very different tech standpoint, and we were competing head to head. And then uh, a couple of years later, th- they pivoted to 
a different part of the industry and became a software-only player. And then the IoT part of that, we actually acquired. And one of their co-founders is now our, our chief technology officer. And then we were sharing stories about how they also felt they were a couple of years too early to market. And we had a lot of very, very similar uh, very similar stories. But because we were a little too early to market, when COVID happened and the need for remote monitoring skyrocketed, we were very well positioned to, 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 to meet that market need. So we were early, but in this case, serendipity. Yeah, if you want to call it that, <laughs> um, we we were in a we were in a position where we could we could address the market needs when yeah. that happened. So, parting piece um, again. Thank you for sharing all of this so far. Uh, to what degree do you feel that luck has been a part of your success? Um, a tremendous uh, part, um, and I I I I'd frame it as timing. Um, with the with the misfit acquisition, timing was everything, um, and. Luck is also things that are beyond our control. So, for example, this is going to sound very counterintuitive, but um, we were very happy that Fitbit, you know, it's public. We were acquired for like $260 million. I saw that. Um, Fitbit at the time was a $10 billion. They were 40 times more valuable than us. And you know what? We were happy. If they were, if they were $20 billion, <laughs> we would have been valued higher. So... A, we're very happy that 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 they were valued so high because it raised everyone's evaluation. The other thing uh, that that was counterintuitive here was uh, the reason we got acquired uh, was because of uh, the Apple Watch. When you think about the Apple Watch coming out, um, the the feeling was, oh my God, that's they're going to crush all the wearables. You guys are going to be out of yeah, business, right? We didn't see it that way because they were targeting a different part of the market. Um, but what ended up happening was it it the Apple Watch actually had an impact on fossils stock price. If you if you look at fossil stock price, they were getting uh they were getting beaten up because they were valued as a viewed as a watch company and they didn't ha- they needed a technology response mm. to the Apple Watch, and we were that technology response. Wow. And Makes so sense. Yeah, in, in retrospect, it all it all makes sense. But at the time, it was you know very few people could see that. And timing of that, timing of the fact that Fitbit was so high, and um, the other thing is we knew what was going to happen yeah. uh, to the uh, to fitness tracker market. We knew it was going to get commoditized uh, because we actually some of our investors were um, were uh, major Chinese corporations. So one of them was uh, Xiaomi. Um, the Apple Apple of China, and, and we knew that they had a very low cost fitness tracker that they had developed. And we're like, all right, we, we know where this is heading. Mm-hmm. So when we had the opportunity to exit, uh, we said we need to take this because Fitbit's up here, the Apple Watch sort of uh, dynamic is now, and we know what's happening with uh, smart. So let's let's get out now. So a lot of that was driven by timing and and events outside of our control. So. Yeah. Luck is a huge part, but also being able to recognize when you're lucky yeah. <laughs> it was, was, was a big part of it. Uh, well, on that note, would you like to buy a few NFTs uh, or <laughs> I got some Ethereum? Yes. <laughs> Can I interest you in any? I'll pay you in Bitcoin, yeah. <laughs> yeah <please. laughs> yes. 
I'm still working on that timing piece. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, Sri. Uh, you're a very fascinating individual, and I can't thank you enough for joining me. Yeah, um, well, thanks for the invitation. Really enjoyed it. Where can people find you? I mean, obviously, if they can't read your sweater from there. Yes, yeah. Um, find me on LinkedIn. At, yeah. um, I'm Elemental Machines. Um, uh, yeah, Sri Nara Iyengar. I guess you put you yeah, we'll put it up. Yeah, we'll put it on yeah. find me on LinkedIn, and if you are going to connect with me, just write a little note saying that it Thanks. was uh, that you heard that you saw the podcast. Okay. So uh, cool. Yeah. Well, that's it. Um, with that, the official podcast is over. All right. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.